You know, when the disciples saw Christ praying, and they asked him to teach them how to pray, he said, no sweat. Pray like this. Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is incredible. That has all the components of what prayer is and ought to be. I don't think there's any indication that we have to pray that verbatim necessarily, but if you want to pray well and, and in a way that puts God on display, you pray the way the master taught us to pray. Let that be said. And yet at the same time, King Hezekiah of Judah also taught us how to pray. You remember, you remember it was 701 B.C.? That was the year that the armies of Assyria invaded the land. Village after village, city after city leveled to the ground as nearly 200,000 soldiers slaughter and pillage and murder and destroy everything in their sight. And as they're on their way to demolish Jerusalem and kill everyone inside, King Hezekiah falls on his face before the living God and with zero hope left and the fate of his people hanging in the balance, he prays. And this is what he prayed. O Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, the one who sits enthroned above the cherubim, you are God alone over all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Incline, O Yahweh, your ear and hear. Open, O Yahweh, your eyes and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to reproach the living God. And now, O Yahweh, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Yahweh alone. That is how to pray. That is how to plead with the Almighty. To call upon him to intervene and put his matchless supremacy on display for everyone to see. And you remember, don't you? Yahweh does intervene. That very night, the very night that Hezekiah prays this prayer. God sends an angel of the Lord into the Assyrian camp and in minutes, maybe even in seconds, kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers like it was nothing. Jerusalem lives again to see another day. That's the scene of Isaiah chapter 37. 
a scene for the next couple weeks for us, because, and the scene is incredible, because here in Hezekiah is a man who models what it looks like to pray when staring down the barrel of fear and unbelief. Here is a man who models fearless faith in a God who is invincible. Here is a man who had the courage to fall on his knees and plead with the living God and depend on nothing but the promises of God. Hezekiah will teach and will disciple us on how to pray. Let that be said. And yet at the very same time, we need to be very careful about this. Because this chapter isn't really about Hezekiah, nor about Hezekiah's prayer, but about the God to whom Hezekiah prayed and what he is doing in human history. What I'm saying is there are two fundamental things about Isaiah 36 and 37 that we really, really have to understand. We have to understand why these chapters were written and to whom they were written. We got to get that. Why these chapters were written and to whom they were written and to whom these chapters were written. Listen carefully. These chapters were written for a future generation of Jews, not even yet in existence. These chapters were for them. A generation of Jews yet to be born because think about it. Isaiah didn't have to record the events in these chapters for the people of his own day because they were already there to see them with their own eyes, were they not? Rather, Isaiah records the play-by-play display of the matchless deliverance and supremacy of God for a future generation of Jews who were really going to need it. And the reason why, the reason why is because this future generation of Jews would be suffering in exile under the regime of Babylon. That was almost 120 years in the future. And these chapters are written for them to give them the courage and the theological foundation they need to trust in Yahweh as their cosmic king and creator. That's why these chapters are here. To soothe and support and strengthen the souls in exile. And yet, and yet at the very same time, 2,700 years later, these chapters still have the intended design of giving you and I what we need to trust in Yahweh as our cosmic king and creator. These chapters are here to give us radical hope and fearless faith in Yahweh as our cosmic king. Radical hope and fearless faith because I'm just going to level with you. I'm going to level with you in an age like ours with all of the encroaching darkness and dangers coming for the church. Radical hope and fearless faith is exactly what we're going to need. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text two elements. Two elements of God-exalting prayer we must pray when staring down the barrel of fear and unbelief. That's where we're going. Two God-exalting elements of prayer that we need to pray when staring down the barrel of fear and unbelief. There are five parts to the scene. We'll see three of these this morning. Let's begin with part one, which I call the comfort. The comfort. 
the soul of the king soothed by Isaiah. Because you remember the scene of chapter 36, don't you? The armies of Assyria had marched into into Judah with a mass of power that could not be resisted, conquering absolutely everything. Every city and village and town now had an Assyrian flag waving in the wind. That is, of course, except Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the last and greatest prize left to take. And you remember in chapter 36, the king of Assyria sent a message to King Hezekiah with a ultimatum. And the ultimatum was he could just hand over Jerusalem to the king of Assyria or the king of Assyria could just come and take it. That's the deal. Option one, some people die. Option two, everybody dies. And you understand this is no empty claim. Assyria had 200,000 soldiers just a few miles away in the next county. That's more people than even lived in Jerusalem. Without even breaking a sweat, they could have turned the holy city into a pile of smoldering bricks. And you remember how the scene ends in chapter 36. Hezekiah's men held their composure before the king of Assyria's representatives, but as soon as those representatives leave, they come unraveled and they have a meltdown. Look at the last verse of chapter 36, verse 22. And Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the house, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joach, the son of Asaph, the recorder, they came to Hezekiah with their robes torn. And they declared to the king the words of the Rabshak. You understand, they tore their robes because they were rocked to their souls. And why were they? Well, because from a human perspective, it was over for the great city of Jerusalem. It was over. I mean, unless God intervenes here in a sovereign and supernatural way, there's no way this thing does not end in the decimation of the city and the people in chains headed to exile. And not that Hezekiah was, not that he was expecting any good news to come from this meeting. He was not. But when he saw these men emerge into the palace with their robes torn and that grim look on their face, well, it only confirmed his deepest fear. Hezekiah, Asaph, what am I saying? Assyria aimed to torch everything to the ground. And Assyria would stop at nothing to take it all for themselves. And like the godly men that he appointed, Hezekiah responds in the same appropriate way to the tragic news. Look at chapter 37, verse 1. And when the king Hezekiah heard, heard what? Heard the words from his men given to him by the Rabshakeh, he tore his robes and covered himself in sackcloth, and he went to the house of Yahweh. You understand, for the king to tear his robes and cover himself in a scratchy burlap sack was a sign of repentance and of a national emergency. Everybody needs to stop right now what they're doing and get on their face before the living God and ask him to intervene. This is what you do when you're staring down the barrel of your own destruction. When you have no other option left but to trust in God to do the impossible. 
Now, it's true. It's true. And, and if you've been paying attention over the last several months, it is true that Yahweh had been promising for years that he would deliver his people from the hand of Assyria. He had promised that. But you see, not without the king leading them in repentance and faith. That was the condition. Because you remember, the faith of the king determined the fate of the nation. And while it was not a fearless faith, it was authentic faith. Because look at the end of verse 1. What did Hezekiah do? He went to the house of Yahweh. He went to the temple where the very presence of God was. And he did what you do when you are persuaded that Yahweh is a cosmic king of matchless supremacy. He prays. You, you pray and you plead with God to intervene and do the impossible. And yet notice also the wise faith of Hezekiah in verses 2 and 3. Because in those days, if you want to talk to God, you go to the temple. If you want to hear from God, you go to a prophet. And the prophet in those days was the legendary Isaiah, who had been a prophet for the last 30 years. And I want you to pause and just think about this godly paradigm that Hezekiah presents to us. Prayer and the word. Imagine that. Prayer at the temple. The word from the prophet. But you see, these are still the means these are still the means through which God ministers and mediates and meets with his people. The word and prayer, the word and prayer, this is it. So the question is, the question is when your soul is crushed in a vice of fear and anxiety and sin and depression and despair. The question is, do you have the same prayer centered word focused reflex as King Hezekiah? When your heart is hardened by sin or gripped by fear, is it your reflex? Is it your impulse to go needy and desperate to the throne of grace? Do you, like Hezekiah, send for the prophets and the apostles in the pages of Holy Scripture to speak truth to your soul? Because you understand that's what faith in real time looks like. And you can see it in verse 2 there, while Hezekiah is pleading with God at the temple, he sends the very best of the best to Isaiah, Eliakim, who was over the house, Shibna, the scribe, the, 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 the fathers of the priests, it says, the, the elders of the priests covered in sackcloth to hear a message from the prophet. In verses 3 and 4, they recite, they recite to Isaiah the very words of the king. Look what they say. Thus says Hezekiah. Today is a day of distress and punishment and gloom for the children have come to the brink of birth, but there is no strength to deliver. 
Perhaps Yahweh your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, who the king of Assyria, his master, sent him to reproach the living God, and he will rebuke the words which Yahweh your God heard. Now pray, lift up a prayer for the remnant who remains. And you can hear it, can't you? Hezekiah's message is filled with sadness and despair, and yet, and yet it is also lined with hope and threads of faith, is it not? Look at verse 3. Today is a bleak and tragic day, Isaiah. End of verse 3. We're, we're like sons, children who literally, it says, came to the mouth of the womb, but there was no strength to deliver them. What does that mean? He means we don't have hope or strength to make it another day. Our fragile faith hangs by a slender thread. Have you had those moments? Are you in one of those moments even as we speak? Because Hezekiah shows us how to pray in those moments and to whom it is that we pray. And notice there in verse 4 about the humility and the theology of Hezekiah. Perhaps, he says, perhaps Yahweh your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, which the king of Assyria, his master, sent him to reproach the living God. Do you hear that? Perhaps, maybe God will do this. Maybe God will take note of these blasphemous words and he will act and intervene and crush the Assyrians. What do you mean maybe? What do you mean maybe? Perhaps. You know what that is? That's humility. That's humility. You see, Hezekiah says perhaps, not because he thinks that Yahweh is deaf and can't hear, but because he knows that because of their atrocious disobedience as a nation for decades, God was not obligated to save them at all. That he would have been right, and he would have been just had he permitted the Assyrians to come in and obliterate them off the face of the planet. I mean, there's not a shred of presumption or entitlement here at all. We deserve this, God. You owe us, God. Yeah, we deserve judgment. You owe us wrath. That's true. But you see, Hezekiah knows God, doesn't he? And he knows that there is not one single thing about he or his people that deserve the gracious deliverance of God. And so what does he do? Look, what he, look at the text. Look what he does. He appeals to Yahweh to intervene, not because they're so great, but because of his own glory, which had been so violently and shamefully reviled by the king of Assyria. Do you see that? That's what he means when he says, maybe God will hear how he mocked the living God and on that basis intervene and kill Assyria and deliver his people. And for the sake of his own glory, that he would deliver a people who in no way, shape, or form deserved that deliverance. And that is exactly how we should pray. Exactly like that. For the fame, for the sake of the fame and the glory of your name, O oh God, deliver me. For the sake of your name and your reputation, save my marriage. 
save my kids, save my grandkids. For the sake of your own glory, give me the grace to walk in holiness, to put lust to death, to put anger to death, to put pride to death, to put doubts to death, to put bitterness and complaining and fear and anxiety to death, also that everyone can see that you are a God matchless and supreme. Do you pray that way? Because you should. Those are the kinds of prayers that God loves to answer. And in verse 5, Hezekiah's posse arrives at Isaiah's office. And seemingly before, seemingly before there's even a word out of their mouth, Isaiah stands ready with a response. Look at verses 6 and 7. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says Yahweh, Do not fear. Because of the words which you heard, with which the king of Assyria, which with the, the, the youth, the, the men or the servants of the king of Assyria blasphemed me. Why? Behold, I will put in him a spirit and he will hear a rumor and he will return to his land and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. I mean, this is incredible. Isaiah's reply here is, is simple. And direct and it is powerful and it all begins with that staggering little phrase there in verse 6 repeated over 1900 times in the Old Testament Ko Amer Yahweh thus says Yahweh thus says the Lord do you know what that is that's reality. That is certainty. That is truth. It doesn't matter what friends or feelings say if it conflicts with the word of God. Because what Yahweh says is not just true. It is absolute truth itself. And here's what Yahweh says. Do not fear. Don't. Don't fear. Those, those words that you heard, those big, bad, scary words with which they mocked and blasphemed me, yeah, you don't got to worry about those. Because even though the threats of invasion and starvation and annihilation were meant to cripple you into surrender, let it be said that not one of those things would ever happen unless it had been ordained by God himself. And it had not been ordained. Because you see, God is the one who holds the cards, not Assyria. God is the one who pulls the strings, not Satan. He is the one who runs the show and rules the roost. And nothing ever, listen very carefully, nothing ever happens in your life or in the world unless it has been decreed by the living God. And I, and I love, I love the holy mockery at the end of verse 6. Your version might say, do not fear the words which the servants or men of the king of Assyria blasphemed me. Do you see that there? Uh, the, the Hebrew word there is literally the Hebrew word for young men. Youth, boys, 
little punks who mocked and belittled the Holy One of Israel. I mean, they were grown men. And from a, from a human perspective, very scary men. But to comfort his king, Yahweh mocks them as little boys playing a grown man's game that they definitely do not understand. And in verse 7, verse 7 is the reason why they don't need to fear. This is, this is incredible. It, it's yet another profound manifestation of the invasive sovereignty of God that does what he pleases and works the impossible. Uh, look at the text. Don't fear their foolish words. Why? Because I will put a spirit in the king of Assyria. And he will hear a rumor. And he will return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. That is astonishing. Do, do you hear what God just said he would do? <laughs> Yahweh would put a spirit, not the Holy Spirit, <laughs> but an abiding, turning, influencing impulse in the heart of the king of Assyria that would cause him to react in a way different than he would normally react. In other words, God would fiddle with his mind and make him want to do what God wanted him to do, namely cause him to abort his plan to invade Jerusalem and go back home to Assyria and then get assassinated. That he would hear a rumor and the rumor would be enough to cause him to rethink his plan to invade Jerusalem and decide to withdraw his troops and go back to Assyria. That is exactly what Yahweh said he was going to do. It's indisputable. And as a result of that, that would be the fulfillment of what God had been promising for the last 30 years, namely that he would save and rescue Jerusalem from the hand of Assyria. This is incredible. And so think about this. God would turn the heart of the king of Assyria, which shouldn't surprise us at all, should it? Is tweaking of him because did not Solomon himself say in Proverbs 21.1 that the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh and he turns it wherever he pleases? It's exactly what he said. And notice very carefully that God even planned Sennacherib's execution. Do you see that? End of verse 7, literally, I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. I mean, God even chose the murder weapon. I mean, you think about what's actually happening here. Just, just take a step back and think what's actually happening. There are 10,000 moving parts here. And God is weaving it all together to bring about the outcome that he himself determined, namely that Jerusalem would be saved. It's the bottom line. The reason why they did not need to fear was because God is absolutely sovereign over everything. And that is precisely the sword that slays our deepest fears that come upon us in this life, namely God's passion for his glory and God's control over history. Because, beloved, we just got to be honest. Many terrors potentially await us in this life. We can neither predict nor control 
anything that is going to happen to us in the future. And while that's cause enough to drive us insane and drive us to despair, there is a reality so staggering in its power that should our greatest fears imaginable come upon us, cause our faith to remain unshaken. And it is, it is that God has absolute undisputed dominion over everything. Don't you see? Don't you see? Sovereignty is for our sanity. Providence is for our perseverance. The greatest comfort we can have in the world is that God is sovereign over the world. Don't you see? In a culture and a society just obsessed with mental health and awareness. They have no idea what mental health even is or how you even get there. But we know, don't we? Because real mental health is a mind that knows that God works all things together for good to those who love him. And that's what soothed the soul of the king. And no doubt Hezekiah's men returned with the words of Isaiah. And that would be cause enough to, to throw a party. And yet you know the story is not over. The threat is not over. It's still a little too soon to break out the champagne and celebrate because you understand that God had ordained yet another wrinkle to this whole thing that was going to force Hezekiah to see what Yahweh was really made of, which brings us to part two. Part two, which I call the challenge. The challenge, the soul of the king threatened by Sennacherib. The soul of the king threatened by Sennacherib. Because you understand, one of the things that makes God not boring, and that makes his plan not boring, is that God, even God ordains what even seem to be setbacks to his own plan. Have you noticed this? That God seems to paint himself into a corner, as it were, and puts him in a seemingly impossible situation that seems to call his word and his reputation into question. Again and again, this is how God works in history. You, you see this all over the place. And you understand that this is exactly what's going to do. This, this is what God is going to unfold here. God is going to make it look like the words he just gave to Hezekiah are going to fail and that Assyria has the upper hand. He's going to paint himself into a corner that's going to put his word and his reputation on the line. Look at verses 8 and 9. And keep in mind the rumor, the rumor that we just talked about in verse 7 that has that king of Assyria would hear a rumor, cause him to abort his plan, withdraw his troops, head back to Assyria. That rumor, here is that rumor. Look at the text, verses 8 and 9. And the Rabshakeh returned, and he found the king of Assyria waging war against Libna, for he heard that he had marched from Lachish. And verse 9, he, that is Sennacherib, get this, heard about Tirhaka, king of Cush, saying, he has come out to wage war against you. I don't know if you could tell here, but the intrigue is profound. Verse 8, the Rabshakeh, remember him from chapter 36, that Assyrian bully sent to intimidate Hezekiah into surrendering. 
He, he leaves that meeting in Jerusalem, get this, to rejoin the king of Assyria and, and the army fighting at a place called Libna. You know what that is? That, that's, a, that's a small, mid-sized kind of city a couple miles north of Jerusalem. And verse 9, when the Rabshakeh meets the king of Assyria, notice very carefully, here's the rumor. It turns out that the king of Assyria had heard a rumor. The very rumor that Isaiah just predicted. Verse 9, he, Sennacherib, heard about Tirhaka, king of Cush, saying he has come out to war against you. That's the rumor. That's the rumor that God had ordained. That's the rumor that was supposed to cause the king of Assyria to rethink his plan and withdraw his troops. And that Tirhaka, whoever that is, king of Cush, wherever that is, was coming into Judah with his own army to fight against Assyria. Now, here's the thing about Tirhaka, king of Cush. He was actually a pretty serious dude. He was king of what is now Sudan and Ethiopia, and he was even overtaking parts of Egypt. I mean, this dude was serious, and he was not to be trifled with. And when he hears that Assyria is moving south toward Egypt, well, he gathers his own troops to keep them from encroaching on his territory. True or not, that's the rumor. Does that make sense? And Tirhaka, king of Cush, was enough of a force that would cause the king of Assyria to rethink his plan. Now, again, true or not, that is, that is the rumor. So you can imagine, you can imagine, right, that when Hezekiah and his men hear about this rumor of Tirhaka, king of Cush, coming to wage war against Assyria, well, then they would immediately breathe a sigh of relief and erupt in celebration, as they should. God is good. God is faithful. Even though we deserve the opposite, we will live again to see another day. Did you see what's unfolding here? It's going exactly like Isaiah just described. And yet, in the middle of verse 9, in the middle of the party, who shows up at the gates? Look at the text. Who shows up? Who shows up at the party? Messengers from Assyria. And they have a letter in their hand. Handwritten by the king of Assyria himself for King Hezekiah. Look at verses 9 and 10. Here's the letter. Here's what the messengers read from the letter. He, Sennacherib, heard the rumor, and he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God, whom you trust, deceive you, saying that the city of Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Um, do you see it here? It's almost as if Sennacherib can read Hezekiah's mind. Can he? He, he knows. He knows. Uh, Sennacherib knows that if the Cushites are coming to wage war against him, he knows that Hezekiah would automatically assume that he would have to withdraw his troops and rethink his plan because that's, that the, these guys were serious. That he would abort his mission and back away from Jerusalem. And yet Sennacherib, you can see it in the letter, Sennacherib just wants Hezekiah to know the rumor changes nothing. Cushites or no Cushites, I'm coming for Jerusalem. And like a cat with a mouse under his claws, look how Sennacherib toys with Hezekiah. Verse 10, do not let your God deceive you. Your God that you trust, don't let him deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. You're a fool. 
You, you really don't think that Jerusalem will not be under my possession by tomorrow night? Dumber than I thought you were. When you think about it, Sennacherib seeks to poison Hezekiah's mind at the deepest possible level. Do you notice? By eroding his faith and trust in the word and character of God, he's not worthy to be trusted because he does a, he's a deceiver and he's a liar, not to mention too weak to contend with my power. And, and we do this with our own fears, do we not? Do, do we not look at life through human eyes? Anti-supernatural eyes? We, we reason with human logic? And we just assume that what God has said in his word can't possibly be true. The Sennacherib inside each one of us inflates and exaggerates the dangers and dilemmas and fears and failures of our lives to the degree where we begin to un-God God from his place of supremacy in our lives. Do you not see this? Do you not See the cage match in your soul every single day between what the text says and the voice in your heads? Which one is more worthy of your trust? The text says one thing. Your feelings say another. Who has the louder voice? Because now we see, don't we? Now we see what authentic faith really is. And what authentic faith is, is courage. The courage to take God at his word. And just trust him for the outcome. And you understand, don't you, this chapter was written to give you that courage. Before this chapter ends, you are going to have all the historical proof you need that God can and should and must be trusted. That his word is reliable. That our trials don't come from nowhere. Our trials don't ultimately come from Satan. Our trials come with, from God. He chooses them. You see, you know that the Lord is at work in your lives and that he loves you with radical affection when he causes you again and again and again to face your deepest fears. When he pries out of our hands anything to which we cling other than his son. Don't you see? God is most glorified in us when we have nothing to trust but him alone. And the rest of the letter, king of Assyria just gives it everything he's got. I mean, it's full-on propaganda, full-on fear-mongering, trying to emasculate their faith. Look at verses 11 through 13, and notice how Sennacherib frames the issue. Notice, this isn't just a fight between the nations. This is a battle between the gods. Look at the text. Behold now, you have heard what the kings of Assyria did to all of the nations to utterly destroy them. And shall you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations deliver them from what my fathers did? 
And then he names the nations, Gozan and Haran and Retsef and the son of Adan, who is in Tilashar. Where is the king of Hamat? Where is the king of Arpad? Where is the king in the city of Sepharvayim, Hena and Eva? And, and I know that sounds like a bunch of gibberish, but you understand those are names of other nations whose gods could not protect them from Assyria. The question is, verse 12, where were the gods of these other nations when they needed them the most? Where were the gods of these nations when my mighty armies stormed the gates and torched the cities and slaughtered the people? Where were they? Verse 13, where are their kings? I tell you what, why don't you, why don't you get on your phone? Why don't you call the king of Hamat right now and see how he's doing? Why, why, don't you, why don't you send the king of Arpad a text, see if he texts you back? Where do you think the kings of Sepharvayim and, and Eva, why don't you find out where they are? I'll tell you where they are. They're dead because we killed them, all of them. And the punchline, verse 11 is, what on earth do you think Yahweh can deliver you from my hand? Sincerely, King Sennacherib, great high king of Assyria. And that's the end of the letter. And, and I know what this looks like. It looks like the prediction failed, does it not? There was supposed to be this rumor, and that was supposed to be enough to cause the king of Assyria to back away and go, you know what, never mind. I don't want to mess with Tirhaka. Let's, let's rethink our plan. Let's go back to Assyria. Right? You, that, it was supposed to do that, and it didn't do it. So the uncomfortable question is, was the prophecy false? Was the prophecy a failure? Did God just paint himself into a corner that seems to call his very word and reputation into question? And that is exactly what he has done. Deliberately so. On purpose. Listen carefully. The rumor prediction was not false. Nor was it a failure. By the end of this chapter, it will be fulfilled. By the end of the chapter, the king of Assyria will have canceled his plan, packed up his camps, withdrawn his troops, aborted his mission, headed back to Jerusalem, headed back to Assyria, and then be assassinated exactly like Isaiah predicted. It's just that there was this little part in the middle, this little detour to the plan that either Isaiah didn't know or he simply chose not to tell them, namely that in the middle of the night, in fact, this very night that God would send an angel of death into the camp of the Assyrians and in minutes, maybe even in seconds, nuke 185,000 soldiers like it was nothing. That is how God would escape the corner, just like that. It wasn't glory enough that he would be, the king of Assyria would be forced to withdraw because of a mere rumor. Oh no, oh no, he was gonna make him pay for defaming his glory and be exalted as God alone. And you understand, beloved, that's still how God works in our lives today. You know that, right? That's still how he works in our lives today. God ordains what seem what would even appear to be setbacks to his own plan all so that he can get all the glory when they are finally resolved 
He did it in the garden. He did it at the Red Sea. He did it with Daniel at the lions and he did it here. And you remember, he did it at the cross. When they laid the limp and lifeless body of Christ in the tomb, it looked like the ultimate blunder and defeat and that God had lost control. And yet you know how that turned out, don't you? Plot twist of the universe. And the fact of the matter is, beloved, we all have something. We all have something in life that ails us. That haunts us, that tempts us, and tries us, and torments us. We all have something that we dread that if it were to come upon us, would almost cause us to lose our faith and walk away from Jesus Christ. My question is, what is that for you? And my real question is, do you have a plan of attack for that? Should that come upon you, do you know how you're going to respond? Because what you should do is pray. And not just pray, but pray in the way Hezekiah teaches us how to pray, which brings us to part three. Part three, which I call the cry, the soul of the king seeking his God. The soul of the king seeking his God. And oh my, does Hezekiah know how to pray? Look at verses 14 and 15. And Hezekiah took the letters, plural, there was more than one. Hebrew indicates, took the letters from the hand of the messengers and he read them. And he went up to the house of Yahweh. And Hezekiah spread them out before Yahweh and, he pr- and Hezekiah prayed to Yahweh saying, stop there. You understand, don't you, the the act of going to the temple, falling on his knees, spreading out the letters before Yahweh, what is that but a gesture of faith? He knew. He knew that the only, and I mean the only way they were going to be delivered was not through a bribe or negotiation. It wasn't through some sort of military strategy. The only, and I mean the only way they were going to be delivered was if Yahweh delivered in a sovereign and supernatural way. And that is exactly how God wanted it to go down. And yet, through the means of prayer. Calvin said this, he said, we are taught by this example that when we are sorely pressed, there is nothing better than to cast our burden into the bosom of God. All other methods of relief will be of no avail if this single method be wanting. In other words, if you don't pray, there will be no relief. And there he is on his knees, fragile faith hanging by a slender thread. And this is what he prays. Verse 16. Oh, Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, the one who sits enthroned above the cherubim, 
you are God alone over all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Incline, O Yahweh, your ears and hear. Open, O Yahweh, your eyes and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid in ruins all of their countries and their land, and they cast their gods into the fire. But they are not gods, but rather the work of the hands of man and wood and stone, and they destroyed them. And now, O Yahweh, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Yahweh. That is how to pray. That is how to plead with God when staring down the barrel of fear and unbelief. When you have no hope left, but to cast yourself upon Yahweh alone. And that brings us to the first element of God-exalting prayer, number one. Number one. It's in your notes if you've got them. You need to front load your prayers with the majesty of God. You, you need to front load your prayers with the majesty of God. In other words, what I'm saying is open your prayer by reminding yourself of just who it is to whom you pray. Look at verse 16. Oh, Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, the one who sits enthroned above the cherubim, you are God alone over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. Do you see what Hezekiah does? A lost art among people today. Hezekiah front loads his prayer, not with what he needs, but with who Yahweh is. Hezekiah doesn't ask for a single thing until he is certain of just who it is to whom he prays. And to whom he prays is Yahweh. Do you see that? Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh of hosts. And the thing about that name Yahweh, it's not just sounds. That name has meaning. Yahweh has meaning. That name Yahweh is built on a present tense verb, which emphasizes his eternality and, and self-existence. This is the God who never had a beginning, but has always and forever existed. This is what Yahweh means. No one brought him into existence and he depends upon no one or nothing except his own divine perfections. Yahweh is his own is. But you notice Hezekiah calls him Yahweh of hosts or some translations put it heaven's armies. In other words, hosts means angels and yet, and yet it's a military term, which means Yahweh is a warrior God who commands legions of angelic mercenaries who have more power than a neutron bomb. And there are billions and billions and billions of these angelic neutron bombs at God's disposal. 
You understand God is not some grandpa in the sky or, or some fumbling wizard behind a curtain pulling levers. No, this is the sovereign, self-existent God of absolute supremacy whose angels are not chubby babies with wings, but an army of assassins with whom to tremble would mean the end of your existence. And you notice also that Yahweh, he calls him the God of Israel. The God of Israel, meaning that they had a special relationship with the God of the universe. They were his people. He was their God. He, he, he chose them. He selected them. He saved them. He made covenants with them. These are a people who have his divine affection, who have his divine attention. And it is exactly the same with you. You don't pray to a mere higher power or some impersonal force out there. No, you pray to a sovereign father of infinite grace who is bound to you by the blood of his son. When we pray, we're not some little peons pounding on some ogre's door in hopes of mercy. No, we are sons and daughters of the living God, washed in the Savior's blood, who have open access to a throne, the name of which is grace. Notice Hezekiah calls him the one who sits above the cherubim. It's another expression of his supremacy and his transcendence. But that's not all because notice, notice where Hezekiah goes next. He says, you are God over all the kingdoms of the earth, meaning as the only God, he owns and rules the kingdoms of the earth. You believe that, don't you? He owns and rules the kingdoms of the earth. They're his. They must do his bidding, whether they know it or like it or not. And they can only do what God himself ordained. What is Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome or China or Russia or North Korea or America, but cards in his deck? pieces on the board of his domain that he moves and shuffles to carry out his sovereign purposes. And then, then verse 16, the end of verse 16, the reason why God controlled all things, controls all things, because he created all things. You have made the heavens and the earth. The God who made the world gets to rule the world. The God who spoke it into being in an instant is the God who upholds it by the word of his power. You understand, beloved, this is the God to whom you pray. And you need to remind yourself in your prayers of just who it is to whom you pray. Because when you remember that this is the God to whom you pray, you will pray in a way that brings his glory on display, which brings us finally, and then we close to the second element of prayer. Number two, frame your prayers around the glory of God. Frame your prayers around the glory of God. Because absolutely, Hezekiah feels deeply about the danger of his people, right? He, he cares about that. He's not indifferent to that. But I want you to notice, notice very carefully that the real issue on the table for this righteous king was the glory and reputation of his God. Look at verse 17. Incline, O Yahweh, your ear and hear. Open, O Yahweh, your eyes and see. Why? 
Why would he open his eyes? Why would he open his ears? Why? Look at the end of the text. Because of the words of Sennacherib, who blasphemed the living God. Do you see what fired up Hezekiah to pray? Not merely because he and his people needed deliverance, although that's true, but rather what fired him up to pray was the reputation of Yahweh, which had been so violently and shamefully reviled. Does that move you to pray? To fire you up to pray? Verses 18 and 19, he inches his way closer to an actual request. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria laid in ruins all of their countries and their land, and they cast their gods into the fire, but they are not gods but rather the work of the hands of man and wood and stone, and they destroyed them. I mean, this whole, this whole prayer is just profoundly concerned with the superiority of God. Can you see? And we would do well to take a page out of Hezekiah's book. But then in verse 20, then in verse 20 is the request. The actual thing that he asks for. And notice how Hezekiah frames the issue. And now, O Yahweh, our God, Save us from his hand. Why? For what reason? For what purpose? To what end? Look at the verse. Notice that all the kingdoms of the earth would know that you are Yahweh alone. Do you see? That's the issue. That is the issue. That's why prayer exists. Not merely as a tool to relieve our discomfort. But as an instrument of glory. Of God's glory. Prayer is not for the fluffing of the pillows of our comfort. But as a way to put the glory and supremacy of God on display. Don't you see what should drive all of our prayers and should undergird everything for which we ask from God is a burning overarching concern that his glory be displayed. Is that how you pray? Is that the driving motive for everything that you ask from the living God? Because it should and it must be. Don't you see what the world needs to know? And what they need to see in your life is that the God in whom you believe isn't merely some genie in a lamp who merely improves people's quality of life, but a cosmic king of infinite worth who can and should and must be trusted. O Lord, we are but people. And you have put us in a place where we exist for your glory. And one of the ways that glory is displayed in our lives is when we pray and ask you for the impossible. We're so grateful for this. We're grateful for the theology in Hezekiah's prayer. And I pray that we would absorb that. I pray that we would become like this. 
That, that we would latch on to you, O oh God, that we would hold fast to your character, hold fast to your sovereignty, that we would believe you are who you have revealed yourself to be, that if we, that you would help us to live out the logical implications of who you have revealed yourself to be, and in so doing, that you would put a stake in the heart of our fears. Oh, may our courage soar, not because we're great or because of any other earthly refuge, but because of you alone. We thank you for this time in your majestic, magisterial word. Amen.